It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And it is great to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life, our first edition for 2019. And what a great way to start the day because today is one of the great days in Australian sport. And I have with me a man who provided us with one of the great moments in Australian sporting history. No need to introduce him any further. Cadell Evans, welcome to you, Cadell. Thank you for having me here. It's an honour to hopefully start off what's a great sporting 2019 for all of us and, and Australia. I'm sure. Sure it will be, and it starts today. We mentioned the fact that the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race is on today. We speak in Geelong a couple of days before the event. What does this event mean to you, and, and how proud of you that your time in the sport has left a, a legacy in cycling? Um, I have to say, I'd be understated to say I'm very, very proud. It would be a, really an understatement. It's... Um, it goes beyond uh, having having, a, having an event in my own name. Um, if I look at it, try and look at it from a couple of different perspectives. I'm the only rider in the world that has a, an event at this la- this level in their own. The only rider, this only race in the world tour, which is some I don't even know the complete number now. Um, <clears throat> all the top races in the world from the Tour de France, Milan, San Remo, Paris Roubaix, well, um, <clears throat> the, the Great Ocean Road Race to have a rider's name, and that's the Cat 11's Great Ocean Road Race and clearly that's my name so in that regard in, in terms of cy- the world of cycling it's really something significant and I say that not just for me because the na- race is named after me but I say it also from oh this comes also from the government the origins of the race the reason to have it um, <clears throat> and the, the way the way that um, I think us as a country and people who weren't involved in cycling maybe are involved in cycling because of my name and because that name resonates with cycling and Australia, that's that's what brings it together. And I'm also very proud for that, that my, my name went beyond my own sport and certainly within my country, in our country at least, and, um, and that's something I'm proud of. And then on the other side, it's... Um, I can't race at the top level of the Tour de France for the rest of my life, but I can help a lot of people enjoy cycling. I can help inspire a lot of people um, through this race, and that for me gives me a, an, an extraordinary um, great opportunity in life to what, in the end, in its most basic terms, I just cycling can help improve the quality of life of a lot of people, and I want to better help them, help that happen. I think I'm right in saying that after you won the Tour de France, that there were all sorts of suggestions about how you could be honoured and they were talking about naming bridges or buildings after you, but you were pretty insistent that it should be something like this, weren't you? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd, hate, to, I'd hate to have a road or something named after me and someone has like an accident on it or something. <laughs> someone gets run into or a speeding fine on it. I got... I got yeah, I you got could hear spe- the traffic reports on the radio now, couldn't you? Oh, there's a bad collision on the Cadell Evans Bridge. <laughs> That's not something. It's not really quite me i do ride across bridges i do drive across bridges as everybody does but it doesn't quite resonate with me and who i am but um the weekend and of course we have the world tour men's race elite women's race which is the top level of cycling but for me it's just as important to see these little two-year-olds on their training wheels out and mum and dad seeing them maybe ride um further than they've ever ridden in their life so far or um some um 
some of the guys I ride with, they bring out their young sons and daughters or something to watch the race. And that, for me, is fantastic because it's one of these people that are going to be inspired and think, oh, maybe one day I'll ride the, ride the Tour de France. And, and that was me one day years ago when I watched the, TV, watched the Tour de France on TV. I was inspired by it. Oh, one day I'd like to ride it. Of course, as a young, as a young person, you don't know your limitations, so you dream to win it. And sometimes, sometimes these dreams come true. One of the great things about when you were a kid and when I was young and, and still now watching the Tour de France is it's a bit like a travelogue of France and that's one of the things that this race offers too, that spectacular scenery and the ability to take it to 140 countries around the world. And that's on, on another aspect, of course I speak about the cycling aspect and on a, on a personal level what it means to me but um, let's be realistic, it costs money to put on a race and, 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 we, and we, want, we want to deliver on on that investment from the government, from the sponsors, from, from all of us involved in the event and, and if we can be promoting tourism internationally the Great Ocean Road, Geelong, the Surf Coast, internationally, and that's where I really like to see an increase in, in, in where we can improve in the future is having more international visitors come and visit the race and stay here. Of course, you don't come to Europe for a day or two days. You come for two weeks and you... you travel along the entire Great Ocean Road, you go and visit the city and, and so on, and that's where we, what, what, what we really want uh, the race to be, a little bit of a, a billboard that goes around to 140 countries, and the nice thing about cycling is the race is quite long. A 30-second ad on TV can deliver a message. A four-hour bike race can deliver a somewhat stronger, stronger uh, more meaningful message, and, and that's where, on, on, a, on another level, that, that the race is really important, and that's, um, that's what the, the Tour de France originally was developed for that. It was developed by a newspaper uh, publisher to, to, to sell more newspapers some 110 years ago or something, but that's, that's why the Tour de France was developed, and the Giro d'Italia and so on, that's their history, and... Um, Oh, in the modern world now, it's more about TV, but um, but that's um, yeah, that's that, that that's another aspect to the race. I should say this is great service going on here. We're at your hotel and we've got the coffee that has just come in. If you heard the door going there, so Cadell's got his coffee and you've got the cookies there. Quite happy now. <laughs> I'm very I'm very good. I, I, I just I just flew in from Europe on Wednesday morning, so I'm still a bit um, not not quite not quite into time zone yet. How do you go uh, coming back here? You don't get to spend a, a lot of time back here. How many times a year would you get back to Australia? So I'm doing about three trips a year out, and um, my thing, I'm, I'm still based out overseas in Switzerland. I have two two small boys over there now, and um, of course I put everything I can into the race to deliver I can, and I, I spend time... Um, have some work within the cycling industry, uh, which takes me around the world for travels, but also have, have more time at home. But um, having committed so much to my sport, now I try to slow down, have a bit more home time because I do have the opportunity to have that quality uh, father and son time, and that's what um, you know, not ever, not many people are lucky enough to have. But um, I am right now, so I, I try and invest a lot of time in that, and that's for the reason that I'm still based over in Europe. Now, speaking of fatherhood. You're a new father, aren't you? That's why I got here on Wednesday. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, little Aiden Lee was born uh, last week. He's 11, 11 days old, um, 14 days old on the on the day of the race he'll be. And, um, yeah, 14th of January, uh, Stefania delivered well. And uh, he got home on Friday, but I had to jump on a plane to get here because it takes a while. <laughs> you were at the birth? Yes, at the birth, saw all that. Um, what sort of experience was that for you? Very moving to say the least. A little bit. Uh, um, 
if you've been it, you understand. If you've seen it, you understand it. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, try and put it. Try and put it into words. But um, very, very moving. And um, oh, I just tried to you know be there, supporting father. And not much we can do at that point. So just other than be there for moral support. And um, but um, have to say, there's been a few moments where you're there. It's like, wow, this is. This is really incredible. Mm. How long before you get back after the race? Um, when do you get back? Pretty pretty quickly heading straight possible. back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I left. Where he got home, uh, I left to, to come here when he was a week old, and I got back, and he's two weeks old. That's a long time in that period of life. So yeah. um, yeah, so I'm rush- we're rushing to get back this time round. But um, oh, I think uh, a few months when he's ready to travel, we'll be out here again and going a bit slower. Just back to the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race. Women's sport in Australia is such a big thing now. It's exploding in so many areas. Now, you've got a women's race. By the time we go to air, the women's race will have happened on the Saturday. I'm told that you were very insistent that part of this whole concept needed to include a women's race. Absolutely, we um, there was a couple of there was a couple of think fundamental things we needed for the for the event to be a success. The time in the calendar and I think the public ride is also very important. Um, but the women's race was a big part of that. Um, I just had some crazy ideas and there was a bit of um, method behind the madness. But I just felt that um, when we're sitting down discussing the original discussions for this race, and I'm speaking, we're coming on to ten years ago now. Um, there weren't so many uh, of the top men's professional races that had a female race, but I felt it was a trend that cycling was either going to or needed to move to in the future, and so that's why I, I put forth the idea, and um, I thank those people early on for thinking, for having confidence in that uh, idea initially, because at the time it was quite a little bit offbeat, but um, fortunately amongst amongst other things and other than the fact that women have put on a fantastic a fantastic race very competitive very unpredictable exciting race to watch every year from from the very first they had, for that 12 kilometers into the first race that big crash actually in the crosswind mm. on the road out to Bowen Heads from that point onwards it's been um, really fantastic racing um, and they've they've brought a lot to the race but um, it's um, since that's happened it's sort of set off a little bit of a trigger it's made other race organisers think mm, maybe we should do this first and that's been a great stimulus to, to women's cycling not just here but in other races and I'm very proud of the fact that we've been able to to televise the race live two years ago we went for the first year on Channel 7 live on Channel 7 and in terms of women's cycling it was the only only race outside the Olympic Games that was uh, televised live at the, at the time so as this goes to air, the women's race was yesterday and it's pretty easy to watch it on Channel 7 because at the end of this interview, literally as we finish, the Channel 7 coverage will start so everybody can just tune in. Just tune in, yep. Or if, if you're close by, come down and visit and see it in person. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about this race, your farewell in 2015. It was a fitting farewell in a race named after you. Was that a really emotional experience for you? To put it lightly, yes, <laughs> very, very, very much so. You um, on a, on lots of levels. Um, one, I was probably the only guy to race in a serious race, as a guy to win the race, and be the race organizer. That already on its own was took a bit of uh, <laughs> took a bit of um, um, maturity and calmness to to to, to keep my head around. Um, and funny thing, you become, as you get older and more experienced at things, things that are unfamiliar things are more upsetting because you, you're you not used to unfamiliarity. So mm-hmm. here I am, after racing for 20 years or something, 
at the, the top level, but it's the first time I've ever raced the last race of my career. You only get one shot at that, yeah. <laughs> and that was uh, that in itself is already something. But um, yeah, you know, in the end, I sort of just came to this approach where I'm just going to work hard, do what I can to be competitive, and then we'll see what happens. And of course, you look back like any event afterwards. Oh, I could have done this better. I could have done that better. And but uh, all coming in, I had a, I had a great race. The the whole field. It was the first year of the race. I look at the success of the race, and they raced so hard. Well, I couldn't win. I came fifth. But um, it was a, it was a solid race. And um, but most of all, just to to cross that finish line as well the fact that it was here it was in Geelong it was my own race um, oh, I had goosebumps on the start line the thing the national anthem is here you are at your own race and I'm, and I'm starting starting to do the last race the last race of my entire career and then to come across the finish line also was a moment in sport where it was really subconsciously my whole career that line had been somewhere in my mind but I knew that line was coming one day and I was working to do I was motivated nearly every day of my 20-year career to get up and do everything I could to do the best I could, knowing that that finish line was coming one day. It motivated me, because when I crossed that finish line, I didn't want to have any regrets. I crossed that finish line, and still to this day, I don't have any regrets. So it was a sense of relief when you physically went over that line. It's a, a, the end of a 20-year journey, as you say. Was that the overriding sense for you? It was a, a, a big part of it. Um, because a lot of people are speaking to some um, ex-teammates uh, just just today even, and and um, they're saying some riders some riders become scared of retirement. And I, I was like, it was it was it was a great experience, and I have to say, post racing, it's fantastic. But um, it was yeah, a little sense of relief, but also a sense of accomplishment, and then because I was always motivating myself not to I didn't want to let myself down I didn't want to look back in my career as I'd seen uh, met other athletes pro or, or riders that I'd met no I found I'd done this right only I'd done that I didn't want to have that I found I'd trained a bit harder I found I'd been a bit more disciplined or something I didn't want to have any of those regrets so I worked very hard then it motivated me to work very hard and so then when I did get to that finish line without any regrets I was like well that's a box ticked in life. Now let's get on to the next chapter, and and then here here we are today. Here we are, and we're talking about the end of your great career. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the start of your great career, and even before that, and how it all began, and how life began for Cadell Evans, the Tour de France champion. What a pleasure it is to have him as my guest on the first edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for 2019. Back with more with Cadell after the break. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. A very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life to begin our 2019 series with the Tour de France champion, Cadell Evans. Cadell, take us back to your early days. It was up north in the in the top end where life began for you. That's correct. Uh, born in uh, Catherine Hospital, Valentine's Day, 1977. Um, first bike, orange... 16-inch BMX. I uh, remember it quite well. I wanted the red one, but the orange one was closer, I think. So I didn't give me the orange. Let's go. And training wheels and just riding around. But um, Bamili or Barunga, as it's known today, Aboriginal village, quite a different start in life. Um, I think there were um, six white children in the village. Mm. And um, Was it a tough existence for you? Well, that's the only existence I knew, so I don't know. Yeah. I had nothing to compare it to, and um, we were just there for a few years, and then we moved to northern New South Wales, orange BMX in tow, and um, uh, we lived on some acreage, some land up in uh, Upper Grindy, north of, um, it's all uh, blueberry farms now, and... Um, and then same thing, not many kids around, long way to the neighbours, um, 
Orange BMX, Orange 16 BMX is the only mode of transport, and and it was just oh, very quiet childhood. I look at it now, and I was so far away. We didn't have electricity, we didn't have telephone, and any of these things, and and it was very um, snakes and spiders everywhere, and clearing the land, and burning windrows, and and it was really like uh, my parents bought 80 acres of bush, but it was virgin virgin bush. It wasn't it wasn't like a house and a farm. It's like okay, we clear the trees and we build a house, and and seeing all that and being in that. And and I was just, yeah, my, my parents were, uh, mum and dad were building the house and I was sometimes helping and painting creosote in the end of the log so they didn't split. That was about all I was good for at age four. <laughs> and then yeah, school and so on and then moving to uh, Armidale, New South Wales. My mother was studying with my, uh, university by correspondence and then later down here to Melbourne and, and then eventually Bowen Heads. Snakes and spiders, obviously, are things that you need to be careful of, but there was a particular horse that you needed to be careful of in your early days. What yeah, happened? Yeah, one of the um, we, yeah, one of the falls we had, I went down to collect them, and I, I was just there the other week, actually, with uh, sort of my father figure, and he was explaining the story to me again, and uh, Armidale on a sheep farm in Armidale, or just outside of Armidale, he was just indicating where I was, and I went over there to collect the foals, one of them got a bit excited, kicked out on, in uh, horse speak, a pig rooted, and I was in the I was in the way of their hooves. I was a bit too close to the. Don't don't stand behind a horse. They say. Well, that's mm. why. And, I, and it didn't intentionally kick me, but it got me uh, on the ear. Actually, depressed skull fracture. Airlifted to hospital. Six days in a coma in intensive care. Likely brain damage. If 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 um if I live and so on. And um, I was lucky to get through that aspect and come out the other end. And um, oh. I can't remember how many years afterwards, but oh, splitting headaches. I'd get sort of one one a week every two weeks, really, really bad headaches, and it would just immobilise me. But then they went away, and um, and that was um, part of it. I still got the big scar on my head to show, and uh, but that's um, yeah, one one of those little experiences in life. It wasn't until years later I was uh, putting together a book actually, and my mother had written the chapter about that because I was, I was unconscious in intensive care. I didn't know what was going on, and um, oh, it brought me to tears actually to read it from my mother's point of view and and at that point now being a parent it would um it would be the most uh scary experience i think a parent could ever go through what did they tell you mum what did the doctors tell you mum did they expect that you would get through or was it really touch and go it was um pretty touch and go actually it was really yeah small chance of coming back to a normal lead a normal life and it when i was really uh, i was lucky to, very very lucky to get through I called a match at the Australian Open the other day, the wheelchair tennis, and it involved a guy called David Wagner from the United States who was a healthy individual and he was playing with a frisbee at the beach one day and a wave hit him, flipped him upside down and he spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair and that's why he's playing wheelchair tennis. It makes you think about one moment in your life that could potentially change your destiny forever. It's it's scary to think that way. Of course, we can't go in life being scared. What are we told? We're, told we're, <laughs> we're supposed to love like we've never been hurt, and we have to play like we've never been hurt, I think, unfortunately. But the same thing, uh, one of my colleagues, actually, I used to race with, Similar, a similar thing. Gust of wind came. He's now in a wheelchair or has been in a wheelchair ever since. And But it just makes you think, you know, that could 
that could have been me right there. It really makes you reconsider a few things and appreciate what you have, I think. So where did the graduation come from, the Orange BMX? Well, actually, BMX was amongst your starting uh, steps in cycling, yeah. wasn't it? Oh, I was just, just riding, and it wasn't until I, um, I was living in Victoria that I started um, mountain bike riding, and, and I, just, I just started riding to get to school and independence, visit friends and things, and then um, had some friends and things, oh, we're going to go and do a ride up here, we're going to do a ride there, and one of them's like, oh, well, there's a race on, we'll go and do this, and, and that's, when it, that's when it started, and I went and did my first race, just a little local club race, there's this club, probably still in existence today, Fat Tire Flyers, and they run these little races, and you go in, you pay your $5 entry fee and $5 deposit for your number, and get a number, and you do a lap or two of the course, and in your, in your age group, and you're like, oh, that was hard, and my mom, I remember my mum asking me, oh, do you like it? Would you like to do it again? Well, yeah, I think I would, and um, that's that's what really started it. And I just started started racing a little bit, and then all of a sudden I discovered this sport, and I'm like there's all these aspects of the sport, and I just love it. Riding by myself, well, I've done plenty of that. <laughs> the more you ride by yourself, the better you get. the The more you train, the more you win, the more you succeed, the the better it all goes. And then, um, oh, mountain biking is interesting because you have like the fitness aspect, but you also have the technical aspect, where descending and so on, and the, the whole preparation and being organised. I have to say, it was a fantastic school. Um, my my partner is a skier, and um, <clears throat> she she specialises in coaching young young children, and uh, and so we, we 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 look at sport as such a fantastic. S- uh, school and I look back at my own career what what sport taught me and it's just amazing how how much it teaches you on trust and reliability and organization all these things which has served you so well for other other aspects of life and I always say sports are sports fantastic because um you can you can always afford to lose on the pitch or out on the road or <clears throat> on the field, but um, much better learn make the mistake there and learn from it there than than make the mistake in life. So um, so that that was I I was so grateful that I I, I fell into the sport like that because I didn't know which direction my life was going to go in, but it really um, put me on a whole different trajectory. And before I knew it, I was going to going off got my first apartment in Switzerland at age 21. Didn't speak a word of French and professional career and and um, I haven't I haven't missed. A week or two since going to the airport to take an international trip since, I think. Speaking of that professional career, early in the professional career, the Tour of Tasmania, I think it was 99, was it, is it true that Phil Liggett saw you in that race and said, this guy's going to win the Tour de France one year? I think that might be correct. Um, we, um, we were doing, was it 98 or 99? I can't quite remember the, which year it was. And, um, and yeah, we were racing there. And I'd, I'd raced the year, raced the year before, but a break had gone, gone away early. And I went up the climb, and I had a good time on the climb. I thought, oh, you know, if I was racing for the win, I could go much faster. And I remember the guy running the team at the time. Yeah, whatever, whatever. And actually, we got there, and we got there in front. And I was like, oh, okay, now we're going to go. And um, I rode away, uh, rode away from everyone, and I'd been secretly training pretty carefully for it, knowing that it was one of the chances that I had. I was mountain biking at the time under 23. It was one of the few chances I'd actually get to race against some road professionals. And um, the the result actually went back to the pro teams in Europe, actually, because Neil Stevens, I think, was second on GC, yeah. and who was racing for Festina at the time. So it sort of got back that far into Europe, which was oh, good for later on in my career. But uh, that was one of the first breaks. And, and Phil, it's like, well, I, a guy can time trial and a guy can climb and he can bring it together over a period of time. That's the basic ingredients you need for the Tour de France. In my mind, I'd watched, been watching uh, Miguel Indurain since uh, 1991. I was always inspired by Miguel Indurain. Um, 
in the Tour de France, in the back of my mind, and at this point I'm working for the Olympics in mountain bike and the World Cup overall in mountain bike, maybe career on the road, maybe Tour de France will be in the future, and then, um, yeah, that came later. Just one thing, Neil Stevens, the name you mentioned there, I got to know Steve-O a little bit. I did a couple of Herald Sun tours and, and did the whole tour around, which was interesting in itself not only for the cycling, but for some of the activities that went on after the cycling at night. Uh, you didn't have the Neil Stevens mullet, did you? Because no. he sported a beauty in his day. <laughs> I think he still probably has it today. I haven't seen him for a while, but um, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I think he'll cut off a limb before he cuts off that mullet. <laughs> All right. Um, your career progresses from that tour of Tasmania. You're a medalist at the Commonwealth Games in 2002. When did the belief instill itself? in you that you could make it to the very top of your sport? I was um, in 2000, I did some a little bit of, I uh, was riding a little bit initially with the under 23 team in Europe and then with the um the national team and then um, I was riding a few professional races um, in between my mountain bike races in uh, 2001 and at the end of 2001 I went to the world championships in uh, Lisbon in Portugal and um, my manager had arranged a meeting Okay, and then some people sat down and I thought I think I know who these people are and it was the MAPE team which was the biggest and highest ranked team in the world and the biggest team in the world and in my mind the best team in cycling ever I sat down and um, the head coach is there and the manager there and said, um, would you like to uh, develop as a Grand Tour rider with us? And I was like, yes. Do you have a contract? Yes. Can you get out of it? Probably. And that's where it all started because uh, this is uh, Aldo Sassi, Professor Aldo Sassi, who then later became my coach. And he, in my mind, was the most knowledgeable guy in cycling and and, and had an idea for the future of cycling. He saw in me a Grand Tour winner. And the fact that the most knowledgeable person in the world had belief in me, well, I had to believe in myself. And um, and that's where that's where it all started. And that was, um, that was the night before the World Championships in 2001. I hardly slept that night because I was thinking, wow, this is a whole new opportunity and a whole new career for me. And fortunately at that time, I was still uh, young enough that I could still make a full career on the road because I'd started so young mountain bike. And I was already happy to have one career as a professional sports person. This was my dream to have one. Now I've got to have two. And um, what also happened was it was a whole new set of challenges, a whole new environment. So all of a sudden I had this enthusiasm and motivation that I had when I was maybe 16 or 17 going overseas for the first time completely reinvigorated and new set of goals to work to and that started the 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 trip 2000 this is October 2001 that was really the start of the the trip to 2011 Tour de France we'll talk in depth about that obviously probably on the other side of the break but what about your first Tour de France. I mean, everybody forgets the other races, uh, the Giro and uh, the big races around the world. Everybody talks about the Tour de France. When you rode in your first tour, was it everything you expected? Was it more than you expected? What were your feelings about that? Because um, I'd, um, I'd, I'd only ridden one Grand Tour before that, uh, two Grand Tours. One was the Giro d'Italia. And I'll, I'll add this in for, for context. Um, there's a photo of me in the, in the room just down the hall there. Um, I was a first year professional in the biggest team in the world. And for them, the Giro at Italia being an Italian team was the most important um, most important race of the year and here I am their first year professional the only neoprene on the team two days before Milan with finish in the pink jersey I was, a, I was a, a, a neo pro and I lost the jersey anyway and that's a whole story on its own but that was um that's really instilled in a lot of people's minds and a lot of people's hearts because they 
incredible, the most amazing hunger flat in the history of cycling. I'm famous for that. Mm. He's pe- all these grandmas and things in Italy are crying on their couch, watching me on the TV, trying to ride up this mountain, losing minutes and minutes on Palo Salvadelli. But that was the start of my Grand Tour racing. And then I had a few setbacks before my... Um, my first Tour de France, uh, one year, 2000, and next year, 2003, I was meant to start. Injuries, no, you're not going to be ready, okay. 2004, okay, it's going good, you need to perform well in the mountains. I saw since then, there's a bit of sort of doubt on my selection. Oh, you need to perform in these races here, and if you're good in the mountains there, you can go to the Tour. Um, I, won, I won the mountain stage in the Tour of Austria, won the overall. Okay, that's good. Oh, non-selection for the Tour de France. That was a bit devastating. Very devastating, I have to say. I was getting all ready to start my Tour de France career, and then um, it wasn't until the next year, 2005 now, that I actually made it to the start of the Tour de France with a lotto team, De Vita Mon Lotto, of which Robbie McEwen was on. And um, and that was the start of it all, and um, before I went there, everyone's like, oh, you can't believe it, the Tour, everyone's crazy. And you get there everyone's crazy it's no, so much enthusiasm for the race as a rider though I've always been a very rational rider I go to a race okay this is what I need to do to get the results I need to do and I'm very rational about that everything else is a bit of a distraction <laughs> so all these distractions I'm just like leave me alone I just want to race my bike and um, and then racing there and one thing that was interesting there I went there but because I was there with a sprinter I was a bit on my own but as a GC rider we had no idea what I could do at the tour, so for me it was a bit, let's see what I can do. I was a bit nervous about it because, you know, if I come 80th, that's a long way to make it to the to the, to the the top level. I'm like, well, let's see how good I can go, and from there we can make, make a plan to the future to see where I can go. Long story short, I'm there on my own, so I've got to find my way. Interestingly, this was Lance Armstrong's last Tour de France victory, let's say, and um, that team was very strong. It was kind of like... It's kind of like in the peloton. You're fighting in the peloton to f- to stay in the draft of a sort of seven motor scooters riding on the front at 50k an hour, just up, down, climbs, left, right. It's just incredible. And they just ride in the front from start to the finish of the, of the, of the entire Tour de France. And we're just behind <laughs> drafting. But I was on my own. I didn't have any teams. So I had to find my own way amongst all the other teams and all the other contenders. And then days pass and sort of looking about my, my where my position is and I'm probably looking good in, to stay in the top 10 but I've never, I haven't ridden a Grand Tour for years so we don't know how I'm going to go in the third week and I'm there first week top 10, second week top 10 third week and I'm still there I did the last time trial on the, on the penultimate day and I was 8th in the last time trial it's funny, you your first hilltop finish and your last time trial, it sort of resonates. It almost always comes out as what your um, what your place in the GC is going to be. I was eighth on GC, and that's where I stayed, and that was my first Tour de France finish. I was absolutely exhausted, um, mainly just for the stress and concentration because I was there on my own. And that's where it started, and the next year went back, prepared better, better focused, training program I was fourth next year went back better prepared better focused I was second this is a nice progression and then um, came back again oh that's right I had a crash in the first week slowed me up a bit and that that was my hardest Tour de France ever that was 2007 I believe 2007 2008 that was my hardest tour ever against Sastra and um, racing with the injury, I was good for sixth or seventh, but I was sitting in second, so I wasn't going to let up anything because I was still in chance to to win. But I just had to push myself so much harder just just to be there with this injury injuries I was carrying through this crash. I just turned myself inside out. It was 
it was by far my hardest tour. And then second again, I just came up again less than a minute, and that's uh, 2007, second by 23 seconds. 2008, second by 53 seconds. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a race that's um, sort of about 85, 86 hours long, long <laughs> over three weeks. In percentage terms, it's very, very small margin. Close, but but not close enough and then um, yeah they were the first few years Just before we take a break and we talk about 2011 with all of those results you just spoke about the thought must have crossed your mind at some stage I've been so close on so many occasions have I missed the window have I missed my opportunity or were you just single minded about the fact that one day you'd do it I was very single-minded about it. Uh, externally, though, I really had to insulate myself. A lot of journalists were coming. Uh, people in cycling were really believing. It wasn't, um, oh, you have the chance, you could maybe win the tour. It was like, can you win it? Because you come second twice. But so many people would ask me in such a, in that negative way, you've come second twice, can you win it? Can you win it? But it wasn't. I'd go down and buy some bread from the supermarket in the morning and they would ask me. I'd go and get my hair cut and someone would ask me, but can you win it? Can you win it? And I'm just like, I just want to live my life. When I'm on my bike, I'm a bike rider, but when I get off my bike, I'm I'm not a bike rider. But um, I just couldn't sort of escape this. And But in my mind, I was quite, I think I can. If things go right, I need to be lucky. I'm going to keep working on it. But externally, people were really starting to sort of lose faith in me, especially my team that year in 2008. They lost complete faith in me. I thought if I didn't win it then, I was going to win it. And it really showed the next year, which consequently led to a, a very difficult and stressful season. And um, my team, this was the same Lotto team, lost complete faith in me the day of that time trial. I failed to close the gap to Carlos Sastre was second, 53 seconds and um, after that I was a little bit I was a little, little bit on my own there for a little while actually um, that year 2009 I went to the Vuelta a Spain. I had to fight tooth and nail just to, I wanted to ride the Tour of Spain that year in preparation for the World Championships funny little story that they, the World Championships finished three kilometres away from where I'm based in Switzerland and I had this race on my mind for about two or three years and I'd won one race that year, a little stage and one of the lesser level races are the only non-world tour race I did for the year and I went to stage and well you win a sprint of 20 people yeah well that's one race victory is better than none but I go there and my trade team's got no faith in me my national team had little or the Australian team had little or no faith in me we go to the world championships and I've had this race on my mind for um two weeks I've just had the world Espana. I felt a bit stolen off me a comedy of errors led to uh, anyway that's another story on its own but here I was at the World Championships and uh, we, we, we come down to the final of the World Championships, there's 12 of us twelve of us with 3 Spanish of the 12 ok, first Spanish rider that goes, I've got to go with them we're left in 3, they're looking at each other left a gap, 6 k's to go, I've gone away solo I was riding on Sunday, I rode up this same hill that I had to ride up to get to the finish line last Sunday <coughs> Um, I often had this saying to myself, okay, 6.5 kilometres to go. This is going to be the best six... Ride this 6.5 kilometres like you're never going to ride a bike again. Just leave everything on the road. And I became world champion. And I have to say, one amazing, one of the most amazing feelings in sport I ever had in my... Probably the, the single most amazing experience. I was riding into the finish line at the World Championships. 200 of the world's best bike riders behind me. The finish line in front. I'm the first guy to win a Tour de, uh, World Championship solo. I'm riding like three kilometres from my house. Riding towards the finish line, I'm like, am I dreaming this or is this actually happening? And uh, speaking of bike riders' perspective, as you're riding along the TV motorbikes around you, I'm 53.11, which is the biggest gear you have, and I'm 
doing 50 plus kilometres an hour on the flat and the whole world's behind you and the finish line's there in front and I've um, had seven world championship medals at home but no gold and then finally after I think it was uh, 16, 17 years since my first world championships finally I was going to get the gold medal and that also means the rainbow jersey and that turned everything around again. That was an incredible moment in your career. The one that everybody talks about is the one in 2011. We'll take a break and come back and relive some of your memories of that and some of our memories of that as well and whether you were aware of what was going on back home when you did it. Cadell Evans is with us on This Is Your Sporting Life. More after the break. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. What a great pleasure it is to have the Tour de France champion, Cadell Evans, as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life 2011. I touched on it before the break. Before I get your thoughts on what happened, were you aware of what was going on back home? Blissfully unaware. Is that a good thing? I think so. Um, well, one thing, when you're on the Tour de France, you're on the other side of the world, for one. Um, and two, you've got a fair bit to think about when you're riding the Tour de France, especially if you're trying to win it. And um, I always felt I always felt I had a, um, in my mind, as a, I don't, I put a lot, as an athlete, I put a lot of pressure on myself. So if anyone else put pressure on me as well, it was detrimental to my performance. But with the... I never felt I had expectations from the Australian public or my my compatriots, I'd say. I felt we were going in this Tour de France and everyone was along... A lot of people were along the, on, on the ride, on the adventure with me. I never felt it was... It was, let's see how far we can go. I, I never felt under pressure, which was great, because, like I said, that would that would adentro- uh, compromise my performance. Was it only when you came home afterwards that you realised what what the Australian public thought of what you'd been able to do? Then I started to have some idea, yes. Yeah. Um, well, when you walk out of the airport, there's like a three-storey high billboard and with your photo on it, and <laughs> congratulations, Cadell. It's sort of like, ah, OK, everyone was watching. Hmm. Was that year just the perfect storm? Did everything just come together for you? Had a good preparation coming in? Physically, you were good? Was it just all the elements combined to make the perfect race for you? 2009 and the World Championships laid a basis to go to, which I was al- I'd was already been in talks with a new team, gone to a new team. 2010 was a bit touch and go because we had good performances, but we had a bit of bad luck. Um, I was in the pink jersey. I wore the yellow jersey in the tour. I broke, broke my arm in 2010. Otherwise, it was a bit of those. Mm, that was another one that could have maybe been one. But, um, but um, yeah, this is all the little lessons you get in the way, and you normally learn more from your losses. But then in 2011, we came back, and one thing I liked was there wasn't the expectations from, at least within the world of cycling, I was a bit discounted. I remember I, one of the early season races, Tirreno Adriatico, I won, and um, someone was telling it's not something I look at, but someone was telling me, oh, so-and-so put some money on you at 28 to 1. I was like, 28 to 1 to win the tour? I'll go and put some money on myself. <laughs> That's pretty. That's pretty good odds for what I think I can do. Okay, whatever. And um, and then what what happened was winning early um, won the confidence of my teammates. Um, we worked harder. We worked better. We won more. We got, became more confident. We became more unified. And it was just a, a really um, um, how do you say it? like an exponential? Um, oh, really? Like upward, upward 
up upward trend and we just kept pulling each other other up pushing each other up and it really we were we weren't the strongest team on paper we were certainly the most unified and then we went into the tour and um we had a few little things go go wrong as as people might have seen on tv but fortunately thanks to our our um calmness our experience and our, our unity we could overcome them and then when it all came together um like the last time trial that was where i um oh, i had on my mind from months out how that had to be prepared for and how that had to be ridden and um yeah, so we go into like sports psychology, visualisation, that in some ways, yes, I'd done all that. So the last stage is largely ceremonial after what you did in the time trial, but you still need to stay upright. You can drink your champagne at the, the start of the stage. What's your mind ticking across as you're riding around the Champs-Élysées? Well, interesting you mentioned the champagne. I was... What I wanted to have was my dream was to go into the Tour de France and open a Cooper's beer with a yellow jersey <laughs> riding to Paris, being the original Australian. The French didn't take to that very well. So I had my glass of champagne. Okay. While I was drinking that glass of champagne, the TV motorbike in front of me crashed. I had a glass of champagne in my hand. Normally on a bike, you use your hands to brake. I've got one hand to brake. I managed to stop. I didn't spill my champagne. The motorbike nearly took me out for the photos. This is just a little thing. They don't show these things on camera, but... Yeah. Those stupid little things, I'm not allowing them to take a Tour de France off me. <laughs> and that's what worries you going into the Paris and crossing the finish line. And I was really, I've always been, it's not over till you cross the line because yeah. anything can happen. And it sometimes, unfortunately, does happen where a winner of a, a, a race fin- a crashes at four kilometres to go or something. The leader of the race crashes at four kilometres to go and someone else wins it. And so it wasn't until I crossed the finish line that I was um, saying it was done and won. And that's to cross that finish line, though, like, like the other lines finish line we were speaking about before it was cross that finish line and uh, was um, my life changed ever since so you stand there on the champs elysees you've got the yellow jersey on all the presentations go on under the arc de triomphe did you think back to that little boy who used to ride the orange bmx um that moment i was slightly distracted i'd say um i think now this is a my life changed from that moment onwards and I think one one moment that put it into perspective was um, Tina Arena sang the national anthem for for us on the um, Champs-Élysées and um, our celebrations interesting side note um, we, midnight we get back to the hotel uh, I'm hungry, have we got any beer in the hotel? George, are you at the pizzeria? buy 12 pizzas and it was just us sitting around eating pizza and drinking beer until the hotel ran out of beer they didn't have much um, but that was just us our teammates and our partners just sitting down in the lobby nothing fancy but we were just so happy with what we'd done and so proud of each other we didn't we didn't have to do anything more and then um, I was driving somewhere oh I remember I had to go somewhere I was going somewhere in February following year seven months later I was driving along it was the first time I actually had a bit of moment of calm in my life in seven months I was driving along I thought that Tour de France was pretty good, wasn't it? That was a good effort, but it took me seven months to mm. realise it because it's so big and it's so long that it just takes such a long time to sink in and, and three weeks is a long time for an event to happen and it's not like you... <clears throat> I, I sometimes I think, think of these people who do these short events. For, for me, it's over before I'm even got started, but... Um, <clears throat> You have an idea where you're going to finish, then a minute later or something, you're there at the finish line. I've got an idea in January of what I can do. I start in July and I finish at the end of the month. Yeah. Um, the, the result, it's, and then the realisation took a long, long time. In that seven months or after that seven months, was there ever a moment that you said, this is great, but how do I top that? 
I always um from from the day after I was thinking well how do we how do we win the next year and that's um that's where where um where I had just tried to focus on things but you know, jumping on a plane coming to Australia I'm going to Colorado to do my next race and left right left right and um what what was my undoing and I, I know I never um I didn't know about this but um we was we were adopting a child at the time and anyway when I um when I got back February I started having uh, stomach issues and I was having these little illnesses one after another I rode the tour terribly I was seventh overall I, I felt I was exhausted every day just always tired exhausted long story short in August I was diagnosed with uh, a form of chronic fatigue if you told me this in February, if I'd known this in February, I would have had a completely different approach. But um, I raced for like seven months with chronic fatigue. I was absolutely exhausted. But uh, as an endurance athlete, one of the first things you learn in life, being tired is the weakest excuse you can make. The only symptom of chronic fatigue is you're tired. <laughs> you can't use that as an excuse, so you just have to keep pushing through it. And um, and that was that was my undoing. I still consider all things considered chronic fatigue syndrome. You ask anyone who's had it. To ride seventh at the Tour de France is unthinkable, but I did that. But then afterwards, um, we I would already we'd already done the Olympic selection and all the planning and everything for it. We couldn't undo all those things. And then after that, it was the diagnosis has started to come through, and that was really what not repeating. And that was actually the beginning of my decline as a as a as an elite athlete. We've just about come to the end of our chat. We've got one more break, and then we'll come back with some final thoughts as we head towards. And don't forget to turn your television on in just a few moments' time because it'll be on Channel Seven the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race and we'll be back with the Tour de France champion to wrap things up on This Is Your Sporting Life on the other side of the break. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Our final segment on what has been a most enjoyable chat. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have speaking to the great champion Cadell Evans. Cadell, you mentioned Lance Armstrong before. A lot of people will say about this program that I should be asking you about all of the things that have gone on in your sport. I don't feel the need to do that because I think they've been hashed over a lot of times. But one thing I did want to say was what happened to you when you walked into the media centre after you won the Tour de France? Can you recap what happened then? I recap this more from other people's stories because, um, like I said, after you win the Tour de France, you've got a lot of things on your mind. Um, but um, I walked into the media room and everyone stood up and applauded me. Now, I thought, thank you, that's nice. I didn't think anything of it. What I didn't know was, for 20 years, for journalists who'd been working on the Tour for 20 years or more, this had never happened before. I didn't know this at the time. I thought maybe that's what happened every year. I didn't know better. But afterwards I was told this, and that was... Um, to hear this afterwards, and it's funny because when we work with journalists as athletes, we're kind of contradicting roles. One wants information, one needs to hide it, one's got deadlines to make, one's got <coughs> a job to do. We find ourselves in um, a little bit uh, con- contradictory uh, with contradictory uh, intentions when we when we when we're together, and so to have this with people who had sometimes upset me or said quite offensive things about me, to have this was was already a, a nice feeling on its own. And so um, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I was it seemed the only one to um, to, um, to to receive this standing applause from the journalists at the Tour de France. One question, one broad overall question. 
with all of the events that have gone on in your sport, do you think professional cycling will be able to emerge out the other side of the tunnel? I think it's a long way out of the tunnel now. Um, unfortunately, these things had to happen for sport, and I don't, so, so I don't say just cycling, but sport had to learn from these errors. Um, I think, like in if we look back at history, um, various professions. The world's becoming a, a, more, a fairer place thanks to rules and the ability to in, instill these rules. And I speak of other professions, whether it's tax fraud or um, working fairness or, or sport and, and clean sport. But unfortunately, we need these things to teach us and, and, and make us realise the importance of, of, install, of um, uh, having, having, having all these rules and... Um, I'm trying to think of the wall, enforcing all these these rules, and um, that no, 1998 was a particular big turning point for our sport. But then um, it's it's been on a, a great trend ever since then. And then I think the the biggest thing with Lance Armstrong, the whole thing was that scared a lot of athletes and a lot of sports because he was taken down five six years after. Mm-hmm what he thought was okay this is done I'll spend the money because the money's in my bank balance and so on in my bank account and that I think that was probably the biggest thing that to scare athletes from that point onwards and maybe forever uh, you've been very generous with your time it's an incredibly busy week for you we're looking forward to the race today and seeing it on television along with 140 countries on behalf of everyone who loves sport in this country uh, and as one of the people who sat up and watched the television that night in 2011 you gave us a moment that we'll never forget thank you it's been a pleasure to share some time with you and the best of luck for the race this afternoon thank you very very much it's very nice to reflect on it Cadell Evans joining us on our first edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for 2019. I hope you can join us at the same time next week for another edition. We'll see you then. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.